0: We're going to just dive right in this morning to part two of our Basics of Discipleship series. Uh, Really what we want to do in this series is lay down a foundation of understanding what we mean by this term of discipleship. And so if you were here last week in part one, we talked about two key questions of discipleship. One was, why does it matter? And the second question was, what is it? And so I just want to recap those for you before we dive in uh, to the second part of this. We defined discipleship as the process of being spiritually formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others and the glory of God, right? It's this ongoing journey of pushing towards spiritual maturity, of looking more and more like Jesus. And when we talked about why does this discipleship journey matter, we talked about how it's in Jesus. That we find the purpose and priority for our life. That we were designed and created to live in relationship with God. And discipleship is all about the unfolding of that relational journey with Jesus. This morning, I, I want us to, as we push in to answering the next couple questions today, to have a couple key ideas in mind. And, and this comes from Colossians chapter 2, and it's this idea of receive and continue. Continue. Right, this idea that your spiritual journey is ongoing. And so we're going to push into two more questions today. Uh, how do we grow and where do we grow? How do we grow and where do we grow in our spiritual journey? But I want to begin by looking at Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. And Colossians is a letter that Paul wrote uh, to believers at the church at Colossae. Now, the church at Colossae was a relatively young church, and right after its, its founding, they immediately began encountering false teachings. And so Paul writes this letter to encourage the believers to hang on to their faith, to hold fast to what they know to be true. And so Paul starts uh, his teaching on some discipleship and spiritual fullness in Christ in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. There we read this. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. And and why I point this out is this reality of what Paul points to is that your spiritual growth and your spiritual journey is an an ongoing process, right? Sometimes I get concerned that in the church world, we, we do evangelism almost like fire insurance, right? Evangelism and the truth of the gospel is not just get out of hell, right? We, we do believe there's eternal judgment, and we do believe that salvation in Jesus frees us from sin and, and invites us into life everlasting with Jesus. But that is not the end of the journey, right? Paul says, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, if you were a believer, you have received Christ Jesus as Lord. He says, now continue in him, Now, verse seven, he goes on and he says, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught. In other words, that moment where you come to know Jesus, and by the way, did you notice the two ways he says we know Jesus? He says, received Christ Jesus, the word Christ is Messiah, it's Savior. You've received Jesus as as your Savior, but also as your Lord. This, this, This discipleship journey is one in which we say, Jesus, I wanna know the salvation that you bring and I submit my life to your Lordship. But now Paul says, now continue in that push into that and he uses two metaphors he says you should be rooted and you should be built up and discipleship is this ongoing journey of pushing towards maturity of being rooted and built up in Jesus now rooted is an agricultural metaphor to be rooted in something means you are drawing life and sustenance from Christ and being relationally rooted with him And this is important because discipleship is not all about how do I try really hard to be Christ-like. Listen, if your spiritual journey is all about you trying hard, it is destined to fail, right? Our spiritual journey is not something that I do in my own strength. It's about being rooted and relationally connected in life to Jesus. Because just like a plant rooted in good soil, we draw life and nourishment and sustenance spiritually from that relational connection with him. Now Paul says not only should you be rooted in Christ, but he says you should be built up and he shifts from an agricultural metaphor of setting down roots to a construction metaphor of being founded upon. Build your life on the truth of Jesus and this matters because the foundation that you build on determines not only the shape of your life, but it also determines the character of your life because what you build on determines the strength of the rest of the building, right? And so Paul says, as disciples, you are to continue to push into this journey of spiritual growth, being rooted and built up in Jesus. Now, why does this matter for Paul? He continues in Colossians 2, and he says in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy church there are a lot of ideologies out there there are a lot of opinions there are a lot of people proclaiming this is truth this is truth this is truth listen if we are not careful if we are not rooted and built up in Jesus there are hollow philosophies and deceptive philosophies that will encourage you to build your life on them let me ask you a question if I told you I had a piece of real estate that had a giant sinkhole under it and I would give it to you to build your dream home on who would take that deal Nobody, right? You wouldn't build your house on a sinkhole. Why? Because it's empty. It's hollow. It's going to cave in, right? The same is true of hollow and deceptive philosophies. Not everything is all true, right? And we live in a culture that would say, you know, live your own version of truth. But Jesus calls us to build and to found and to root our life solely and firmly on his truth. And that matters because listen to what Paul says. You can be taken captive by a hollow and deceptive philosophy. I don't want to be taken captive that has no substance and something that is deceiving me into living on untruth. How about you? So, this discipleship journey fundamentally matters. So, now let me push into this question. So, how do we grow? Right? How do we, what does this look like to actually push towards spiritual maturity? And, and I want to flesh this out for us using Paul's teachings to the church at Colossians because he's writing to a church that is living at a time where their church is being pummeled by all sorts of ideologies. And he says, hold to this, build your life on this, found your life on this. This is good and true and right. And so as Paul teaches the church in Colossae, he gives us guidance and wisdom and insight on how we too can grow spiritually in our faith. So to flesh this out for you, I want to talk about components of discipleship, or how do we grow. And I've broken this down for us into four categories. It's focus, learn, formation, and do. Focus, learn, formation, and do. And I want to suggest to you that within each of these categories, there are things that we can give our lives to that help us grow in Christ-likeness, that help us push on towards spiritual maturity. So let's begin in that first category, focus. There, I think part of discipleship and part of how we grow is a change in our perspective. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, Paul says this to the believers. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ. What he means is you've been brought from death to life. You were a disciple, you're a follower. He says, no, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Paul says as believers, they should live fundamentally with a change in perspective where they are living with an awareness and a mindfulness of, of the things above, of what God is doing. Now, I, I'm guilty of this. I like routine. It is really easy to wake up Monday morning. I launch into my routine. I'm getting the kids ready. I'm getting out the door and I'm focused on all the things I have to do. What would it look like if in the morning we just paused and said, God, help me to be aware of what you want to intentionally do in and through my life today? What would it look like if we paused and just said, God, how can I bring you glory today? Do you realize that God has blessed you and given you a sphere of influence in which you have uh, an opportunity to give leadership, in which you have an opportunity to have influence on the lives of others? What would that look like if we launched into that with a perspective of, of saying, God, I want to have my heart and mind set on things above? What, what if you recognize that in your neighborhood, in your family, in your workplace, that you are not there haphazardly, but God has a gospel purpose and mission for you right in that place? What would it look like if, if we launched into our work day saying, God, help me to be aware of the things that you want to do. Help me to have spiritual things on my heart and mind today. That change in perspective is part of our spiritual growth. And and I don't care if you're a stay-at-home parent. I don't care if you work in an office. I don't care if you work in a factory. I don't care if you sit alone in a tractor all day during harvest and planting season. You can set your mind on things above and use those as divine kingdom appointed moments because what happens when you change your perspective and set your heart and mind on things above is that ordinary moments become filled with divine possibility. And God will use those to form and shape your life to look more and more like Jesus. Part of growth involves a change in perspective. What is your heart and mind set on too often? And I'll be the first to confess my heart and mind is set on all the things I have to get done that day, and I never invite Jesus into it. What would change and what would look different if even in the midst of ordinary things, I had my mind set on heavenly possibilities? How would that change how I raise my children? How would that change how I engage in the workplace? How would that change how I commute to work, right? Secondly, this category of learning, that part of how we grow in our faith is there are things that we need to learn. And some of this, there's just content, right? There's things that I need to know and knowledge and information that I need to to be growing in. So in Colossians chapter three, verse 16, Paul says this, he says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another, right? We are called in this kind of a setting to teach and admonish one another. Uh, He says, with all wisdom through Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, part of what I thought was interesting too is that Paul specifically says that our praise and worship is part of how we grow in knowledge. Did you ever think about when you come and gather as the body of Christ and we sing uh, the worship songs that we were singing this morning, did you think about that as a substantial discipleship moment where we are learning and growing in the knowledge of God as we worship and as we praise him, as we remember who he is and what he's done for us? That moment of worship is not haphazard. It's not just because we think music is cool. That's part of how we grow in knowledge and depth of insight right? Elsewhere, Paul says this in uh, chapter 1, verse 28. This isn't on the screen. I'm just going to read it for you. He says, he, Jesus, is the one we proclaim, right? Jesus is our message. Everything we do, Jesus is our message. He says, we proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ, right? We, we proclaim and we teach Jesus so that everyone can be presented fully mature. And Paul says it's to that end that he is strenuously contending, Elsewhere in Colossians chapter 1 verse 10 Paul says this he says I pray that I do this so that you would live a life worthy of the Lord please him in every way bearing fruit in every good work growing in the knowledge of God. There Paul is is calling the church of Colossae they have a commission from Paul to be intentional about growing in the knowledge of God. And and, and elsewhere Paul puts this responsibility on them right. I read this too in verse 8 he says see to it that no one takes you captive. See to it in your life that you are so rooted and built up on the knowledge of God that you can recognize and discern a hollow and deceptive philosophy when it presents itself to you, right? That responsibility is on you and I and believers to continually grow in the knowledge of God. And by the way, this knowledge of God is not just an academic understanding of doctrine. That's important. I think we should learn good theology. This is part of what we attempted to do last Wednesday at the seminar. We talked about the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of creation. Those things are important for us to know as believers. But part of what Paul is talking about here is growing in the knowledge of God is also a relational understanding of walking in and doing life with God. So growing in our faith, it's a change in focus, right? Stepping into ordinary everyday moments saying, God, I'm setting my heart and mind on things above. It's about learning that there is content and knowledge and information that we need to know, but it's also about our formation, right? This is the third category. Part of how we grow is there are character formative things that God is doing in us. Let me read for you Colossians 3 verse 5. Their fault, Paul tells the believers, put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these late ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these: anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its Creator. By the way, that phrase "being renewed in knowledge in the image of its Creator" can I break down the theology of that in a real simple phrase? You look like Jesus. You've put on this new life in which you are more and more coming to look like Jesus, right? Let me skip down to verse 12. He says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another, right? Part of how we grow is partnering with God in this process of our character formation, that there are things in our life that Paul says we need to be intentional to put to death, Because Paul says, those are part of your old way of living. That's part of how you used to do life. Paul says, you are not that way anymore. You are new creations in Christ Jesus, being renewed in knowledge in the image of your creator, more and more looking like Jesus. So we are to partner with God in this opportunity to be formed in a new way, to be transformed, to be renewed. So when the spirit brings conviction on that thing in your life that's part of who you used to be, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, Paul names a few. Are we faithful to say, God, I want to surrender that over to you, right? How how about where Paul says, get rid of anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, right? It's not just the big ones. It's not just like lust is always the easy sin, right? That's the obvious one. But now Paul gets a little more personal. Get rid of anger, rage, malice. We live in a culture of rage, we live in a culture that is quick to be angry. Church, we are not to be people of anger, rage, and malice, people of slander, people of filthy language on our lips. And by the way, filthy language isn't just four-letter words. Filthy language includes things like the slander of your neighbor, or talking about that person or gossip. I think that's all part of that filthy language, right? But part of growing is we are being formed and shaped, which means our lives look fundamentally different. Now, it's part of character formation is the second word. It's contending. And I know that's a weird word, but I chose it intentionally because it's the word Paul uses. When, when you contend in something, you, you push in and you overcome even when it's difficult. Contending says, I'm still in this even when I hit opposition. And so much of your faith means that we are people who are contending. We're pushing in, we're persevering, even when things get difficult. Let me read for you what Paul says and again in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. It says, he, Jesus, is the one we proclaim... Admonishing and teaching, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Verse 29, he says, To this end I strenuously contend. What, what, what are you strenuously contending in? That, that, in my mind, is a powerful phrase. Strenuously contend. In other words, Paul says, I am giving my life to this. If you ask Paul, Paul, what matters? Paul, what's the chief end of your life? He would tell you it is to proclaim Jesus and see others presented fully mature in Christ. I am strenuously contending, pushing in even when it gets hard. And by the way, Paul is not just saying this from a position of uh, ease and comfort. In verse 18 of chapter 4, Paul says this. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains the book of Colossians is commonly called one of the prison letters. And the reason it's called one of the prison letters is Paul literally writes this letter under house arrest in Rome. He's being persecuted for his faith and he goes, I'm strenuously contending. And church, when we encounter difficult moments and we strenuously contend and push in and persevere, God uses those seasons to form and shape our character. I hate this reality But one of the the seasons of my life that has been most forming and shaping are seasons of difficulty and struggle. For whatever reason, those are the moments where I I tend to be more humble and more broken and more open, right? It's probably because I'm a prideful person and I don't like to acknowledge what I don't know. And yet in those seasons of difficulty, God brings me back to a place of humility and it creates teachability. So how do we grow in our faith? It's focus, changing our perspective. It's learning content. It's formation of character. It's contending and persevering and pushing in. It's also about engaging and doing. Part of this looks like the cultivation of spiritual practices. So notice what Paul says in chapter four, verse two. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Devote yourselves to prayer. Devotion is a strong word. You are to give your lives to being a people of prayer. I would also argue that uh, the the discipline of thankfulness is also a spiritual practice that Paul calls his people uh, to develop. I am often not a very thankful person, but I am trying to get better in 2021 at being more thankful. Spiritual practices, things that we are actively engaging our life in, like being a people of prayer, like being a people of thankfulness, those practices have a way of forming and shaping who we are. Now, I could stop here and we could do a whole sermon on spiritual practices. I want to just give you a resource, Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline. If you have not read that book, it is a great book that walks you through spiritual practices that you can cultivate in your life that are all rooted in scripture, that are biblical practices. I would suggest you uh, pick up that resource and read that if you haven't, um, because this, I think, is a key part of how we grow. Finally, it's not just cultivating practices, but it's compassionate service. It is giving our lives actively in serving others. This means bringing your time, talent, and treasures and offering it to Jesus as your Lord and saying, How can I serve others with this? So listen to what Paul says again in verse 10 of Colossians 1. He says, I, I pray this, or I do this, so that you would live a life worthy of the Lord, please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. That as you lay your life down in compassionate service to others, right? And this is part of our definition of discipleship you'd be spiritually formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others, right? That we are called to serve. And as God redeems us and transforms us, he turns our life outward on itself. And we are set free to serve others with our time, talent, treasure. And, And Paul says, as you do this, those good works rooted in the gospel, they bear fruit. And I think the fruit is twofold. You bear spiritual fruit in the life of the person you're serving, but it also comes back and bears fruit of maturity in your own life, And and, and maybe this was my mistake. I often thought about, well, discipleship is what I learn. And what I've realized is as I engage in spiritual practices and as I serve other people well, as I put energy into those things, it's often in moments of service where I'm actually being shaped and formed and growing. So how do we grow? It's focus, it's learning, it's being formed, and it's doing. So let me ask the second question. If that's how we grow, where do we grow? What are the contexts in which we're formed? And so we've put together this uh, diagram for you that will walk through the different contexts where we're discipled. Now, let me ask you a question. When you came to this worship gathering this morning, how many of you stepped into this moment thinking I'm entering a discipleship moment? My concern is that often when we think of discipleship, we picture one of two things. We picture a one-to-one moment or we picture a small group. Now, those are incredibly important. That's the communal, and that's the private, and that's the personal. But a moment like this, a congregational gathering where we are worshiping together, right? Paul says this in Colossians 2, uh, teach and admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. As we worship together, that is a discipleship moment where we're learning and being formed, right? And in the congregational moment, this is facilitated for you. You didn't choose the, the text this morning. You didn't choose the worship music. That was done for you. And there's something good about sitting under the authority of those whom God has called to lead in moments like this. Because often what I find is I, I'm in, uh, um, drawn to practices that I might not choose for myself or text that I might not choose for myself. And so it's a way of God humbly teaching and forming me in things that I might not choose for myself. I love the Psalms and I'm often drawn to just read the Psalms. But if I just read the Psalms, I'm missing the rest of Scripture. And so a congregational moment like this is a powerful moment of being exposed to other biblical texts. Now, let, let, let me just point out from scripture the, the significance of this congregational moment. Because I don't think we recognize how often Jesus engaged in congregational worship. So let me read for you Luke chapter 4, verse 16. It says, When he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. You, you want to find Jesus on Sabbath? I can tell you where he'd, he'd be. He'd be at the synagogue. He gathered. The word synagogue simply means to gather. They had the temple in Jerusalem, but in the other communities where the people of Israel were at, they they couldn't all travel to the temple every week. And so they built synagogues, which were gathering places. It was essentially local churches. And Jesus, as was his custom, was in the synagogue on the Sabbath. For Jesus, part of his discipleship spiritual growth journey was being in congregational worship. It's significant. We are formed and shaped in moments like this. Now, I'm going to skip the family component of this because actually Pastor Ryan is team teaching this with me and he's going to talk about that because he has given vision and direction to this idea of family ministry. So I'm going to jump to the communal. And the communal is this idea that you need a small group, right? We talk about growth groups. You need a group of people who are journeying and doing life with you. For Jesus, this was the 12 disciples. He called 12 men to journey alongside of him, to do life with him. Now, in a communal moment, right, there's more personal ownership because uh, you have to show up and take the initiative to join that opportunity to be in a communal moment of worship, to be in a small group environment, right? And so you begin to move from facilitated to personal ownership. But also what happens is it gets more personal, it gets more vulnerable, and it gets more focused. In a moment like this, right, there's not enough time for all of us to confess our sins one to another. But in a small group environment, there's opportunity to say, hey, I'm wrestling with this. I need other people to come alongside me. Now, the personal, communal is a small group, say 10 to 12 people. Personal discipleship looks like a group of maybe one to three people. Now, there's not a magic number here, but Jesus had three people. He had the 12 disciples, but Jesus often took Peter, James, and John, and they had this more intimate relationship. In fact, let me read for you Matthew 26. This is right before the crucifixion of Jesus. It says, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here, right? He tells the 12, sit here while I go over there and pray. Verse 37, he took Peter and two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled, and he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. Y'all, we need close confidence. You need people you can trust. You can sit down with. Jesus took Peter, James, and John, took them aside and said, I am troubled. I am overwhelmed. This is the God of all creation, right? And he had Peter, James, and John, that he had this personal, intimate relationship. And you need people who can hold you accountable. You need people who can encourage you, right? We we can't do this faith journey on our own. And finally, there's this significant area of, of private discipleship. Right, you, you need to be pushing into this. And in Colossians 2 verse 8, where Paul says, see to it, he is laying responsibility back on the believers. Paul is not in the city of Colossae in person, so he sends this letter and he says, take ownership of your faith. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Right, That private area of, of, of forming yourself spiritually fundamentally matters. Right, And in that diagram, you notice as it went down, it increases in personal ownership. Listen, I can't show up at your house on Monday morning at 6 a.m. and go, Wakey, wakey, time for discipleship time, right? You have to own that. I, I can't do that for you, right? And nobody can do that for me. We have to take the initiative to take the ownership of those things. Now, even Jesus did this. Luke five sixteen says this, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And if the God of all creation needs that, how much more do I need to withdraw to lonely places and seek the heart and face of God? Now, I told you we're going to push intentionally into this family discipleship, but I'm going to have Pastor Ryan walk us through that. And, And the reason, man, this could be, this is like a sermon and a half. That's why I'm flying. So I'm sorry, we're going quick. But this is fundamentally important, and the reason we're going to sort of take a break out of this and talk through family discipleship intentionally is this is a a shift as a church that we are are focusing time and energy into, and so Pastor Ryan came on our staff about a year and a half ago, and he has been given vision and direction to this idea of uh, the family as a key area of discipleship. So Ryan, it's all yours. As Aaron
1: said, um, I'm the lucky one that gets to put uh, vision and uh, direction to the family ministry, and it's, it's really great. And uh, so I get to talk about that piece in the puzzle there in the pyramid, the family piece of discipleship and how important that is. Uh, so I'm just going to jump right into that. Uh, I don't think it would be too much of a stretch uh, for all of us to admit that we probably have some family influence in our lives. I know a couple of years ago, my wife and I were just sitting around talking, and all of a sudden she blurts out, that was your dad. And I was like, what? What was my dad? She said, the way you re- just responded, like, that, that's your dad. And so evidently what I do is when I'm listening to my wife and, you know, all the time I'm just completely, you know, engaged there, right, all the time. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there and I, you know, I very enthusiastically just listen, you know, and, and all of a sudden I go, Oh. I know that's really enthusiastic, right? Well, you don't know my dad. He lives in Wyoming. But my dad, that is exactly what he does. When he listens to my mom and he responds, he'll just go, oh. Well, that's nothing that my dad and I ever talked about. He didn't sit me down one day and he didn't say, you know, Ryan, we're going to talk about how to respond to your wife unenthusiastically. (laughs) No, I just... For years decades watching my dad all of a sudden I start responding I start saying things like him and all of a sudden I have that trait. He influenced my life now That's just something silly that my wife and I uh, Laugh about when it happens and it continues to happen Uh, But my my parents also influenced me in other more impactful ways Um, one of those being for decades uh, I sat in church Uh, I say decades, I guess it was, you know, 18. For 18 years, I sat in church with my parents every Sunday. And I watched them put their check, their tithe check, in the offering plate as it went by. And I watched how they did it. I watched that they never really grumbled. They never complained about putting it in or how much it was. And I also paid attention and it was, they always gave generously. And it was this quiet, consistent faithfulness over years that I just watched. And we never really talked about it. It wasn't something that we sat down and talked about it. But when it came time for me to make decisions with my own money, when I became an adult, I didn't need to have somebody talk to me about it. I didn't need to be told. It had just become part of how our family managed our money. I watched them be generous and so that's just how I knew what to do. It became a part of who I was. And now that I have kids, I definitely see the influence I have on my children. And I'm probably not the only one in here, but have you ever seen your child do something and you look at your spouse and you say, that's all you? Uh, it happens at our house all the time and it's always the good traits that come out, right? <laughs> uh, sometimes it is and that's, that's a real benefit. But parents and families have a strong influence on our children, on our kids' lives, from social behavior Education, sports, activities, political ideology, money, the list goes on. Our families influence us. And so that's where family comes in in this discipleship process, than that pyramid that Aaron showed us. Because whether or not you think you are discipling your children— whether you think you have influenced discipling your families, and if you're doing a good job at it or not, or what you're doing, or if you're doing it at all, I'm telling you, you are discipling your families every single day. Everybody is watching all the time. That's why I think, say things just like my dad. That's why I handle money the way that I saw my parents handle money. Because I spent time with them. I watched them. I saw what they did. And Jesus knew that this happened. Jesus knew that discipleship was more than just words. More than just going to a class and learning something. Jesus could have discipled his, discipled his followers any way he wanted. He could have built huge institutions for higher education and filled, filled hundreds of classrooms with disciples. If that's what he wanted to do. But he didn't do that. Let's read in John John one 35 through 35-39. It says, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent the day with him. Jesus invited them into his home where he was staying, into that family and spent time with, and they spent time with him. And throughout scripture you'll see that Jesus did teach his disciples with his words. That's why we have scripture. But you also see that it was more than that, it was the time he spent with that, them and what he showed them, what they saw that was more impactful than anything he could ever taught in a classroom. And that's what we need to understand happens in our families. We spend lots of time together and our families see what we do. Jonathan Edwards, he was a great philosopher and revivalist during the Great Awakening And he called the family a little church. And here's what he says about it. He declared that the head of the family has more advantage in this little community, in his little community, to promote religion than ministers have in a congregation. Why is that? Because it's more than just hearing the word. It's time spent together. It's seeing the word, what it looks like being lived out in different contexts. And that happens in our families. So here at Grace Point and in the family ministry team, we operate understanding that the family potentially has more advantage in spreading who Jesus is than we pastors do. And we call this family as church. The family is church. It's a little church. Now what happens at Grace Point is very important. We teach foundations, we try and make biblical truths relevant and age appropriate for all the ages, but in an hour, a week or so, we can't do it all. Like Aaron said, we can't knock on your door. We can't invite everyone into our daily lives to watch it all play out. So that's what the family does. That's where the family comes in. Grace Point can teach these foundations and these biblical truths, but the family invites in the children and their friends and your other family members. And we say, come and see. Come and see what it looks like to follow Jesus when I wake up. Come and see what it means to follow Jesus when I have a disagreement with my spouse. Come and see what it means to follow Jesus when I'm handling my money. Come and see what it looks like to follow Jesus in a pandemic, right? And come and see what it looks like because that's how discipleship happens. It happens like that in the family. Our family is the church. And So that's one piece of the puzzle in the pyramid we saw. The family, the family as church, our little church that's only half of the puzzle here, the half a piece of where the family is there, because sometimes we don't have a family that may influence us the way we want to be influenced, or a family that leads us to Christ. Maybe we are the first generation believer in our family and what we see at home is not what we want to be discipled into. If that is the case, or even if we do have a strong Christ-centered family, the other thing we believe here at Grace Point is that we're not meant to do it alone. We need Everyone in the church. And Jesus taught this. Uh, we're going to look at Matthew 12, uh, 46 through 50. It says, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? He pointed to his disciples and he said, here are my mother and my brothers For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. That is us. We are family. We are not just hundreds of separate people that come on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday evening and catch some teaching and a cup of coffee. We're not just that. We are a family. We are brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. And so that is what we call church as family in this discipleship process we're talking about we need both we need the families that we were born with and the families we were born again with now i have had the blessing in my life of having both and but understanding what church as my family means for my discipleship process now my parents are wonderful They pray for me every week. They pray for my family. They taught me to seek after Jesus, but they couldn't do it all, and they were not meant to do it all. And that's why we have church as family. In fact, I have someone in my church family who every major decision in my life has fasted and prayed with me and still does to this day, I can call them up and I'll say, hey, I'm making this decision. I need you to fast and pray with me. And they do, always. I have someone who calls me up every once in a while. There are several states of the way and they'll say, you know, God told me to pray for you today. And here's what he told me to tell you. And it is always something I need to hear that they have no idea about. I have church family who, who, who have admonished me when I didn't want to hear it, but I've desperately needed accountability in my life church is my family and that matters so let's read Ephesians 4:16 it says from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its works as each part does its works each member of the family the whole body grows and builds itself up in love and we need every part, every member of our church family for us to grow up, to build us up and grow, to be discipled. And so, what does that mean for Grace Point? Well, it means that in addition to our desire to pass on biblical truths and these Christ centered foundations, this theology, we want to create opportunities to have spiritual experiences together as a family. So sometimes our Sunday mornings or Wednesday evenings can seem siloed because we have nursery, we have preschool, we have Kids Point, we have .45, we have GSM, we have Oasis, and we have our growth groups. And those are all great. And we need all of those because that is how we get biblical truths across to everybody in their age-appropriate ways. But we also think it's important now to break down some of those walls and to be a family. So one of our responses is to introduce Generation Sundays. Um, So now on the months that have five Sundays, starting this month, January 31st, we're going to start having Generation Sundays, where all generations are joining in here together uh, for worship. We're still going to offer nursery and preschool for that, uh, but everyone else will join as a family because we want the wisdom of the elders to influence the youth. And we want the dreams and the visions of the youth to inspire everybody. And we want to pray together. And we want to laugh together. And we want to cry together. And I'm going to cry with you because I'm really good at it. (laughs) So we'll be looking for Generation Sunday It starts January 31st. We're so excited about that. We also announced our family and friends night earlier. And that's part of it. We are meant to do this together. We love Kids Point. We love Oasis. We love all those things. We love connecting with our peers, but Jesus said that the whole body is what builds itself up in love. So that's Grace Point. That's what we're doing about it. What does this mean for you? Well, for our families, it means we treat them like church. That we live out within our family Jesus' love and we pass on our faith to them. We live out those daily moments. For our church family, what does that mean? Well, it means we do our part as the body. We are all part of the family. And we need all generations serving and engaging with all the other generations. Not just going to be on these generation Sundays, but every week. One of my favorite things that happens here is that we have a ton of college students, which is awesome. And we have so many of them serving and loving in a lot of our ministries. And there are some ministries in this church we cannot run without… The service of the college students. I love that. I also love Connie Hobby. If you know Connie Hobby, you love her too. Uh, but she is a great grandmother. She's 39, and somehow she's a great grandmother. But uh, anyway, she is wonderful. But she still uses her passion and her love for preteens every Sunday, and she serves them. I even had a 12 year old ta- tell me not too long ago how much cooler Connie was than me. <laughs> and she is. But you know how cool that is for somebody in completely separate generations to have such a powerful connection? That is church's family. That is the body building itself up in love. And that is my prayer. Especially as we look at this discipleship process is that we all look at what God has put in us, our passions and our giftings, and ask ourselves, how can we be part of the discipleship process for our church family? Because it takes all of us, each one of us, for us to grow and build up in love. Thank you, guys.
0: Thanks, Ryan, for walking us through the significance of family discipleship. You feel like you drank from a fire hose this morning a little bit? It was a lot of content. I recognize that. So I want to end with one other question. What in the world do I do now, right? with all of this information, I, I want to give you a couple questions and a couple things to think about. First of all, I want to encourage you just to be intentional with your discipleship, right? Going back to what Paul said in, in Colossians uh, 2, 6. So as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live rooted and built up in him, like be intentional in that, right? So here's some questions. What area do you need to be intentional in? Is it with your focus, changing your perspective? Is it what you're learning? Is it your character formation? Is it cultivating spiritual practices or compassionately serving others? Which one of those areas might you identify? Or maybe it's one of the the spheres of discipleship that you're going, you know, I need to be more intentional in the area of family discipleship or more intentional in finding a small group or an accountability partner. What does that look like for you? And then I want you to reflect on this question. What is your plan for discipleship? What are you going to do with this information? Now, we want to give you one additional resource. There's a QR code at the bottom of the note guide. You can scan that with your phone, with a tablet, and that will take you to our intentional discipleship booklet, which we've handed out before several years ago, but we wanted to bring your attention back to this because this has uh, helps for how to read scripture, how, how to pray. It's got accountability questions. You can take this. And you could do it with an accountability partner. You could take this and do it with your family. You could pick a spiritual practice together. You could pick a passage of scripture together. You can do this. And this is something tangible that you can take and use. If you'd prefer a printed copy, we do have some at the information center in the grow kiosk. If nothing else, start there. Look at that resource and go, okay, how do I begin to push into this process of being rooted and built up and strengthened in my faith? Because as Paul said, this fundamentally matters. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy as we live rooted and built up in Christ. Uh, Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we've had as the body of Christ uh, to dive into your word this morning. And God, I I find myself just convicted by the words of Paul that he has given himself to this lifelong mission of helping people reach maturity in you. And, And Paul says he is strenuously contending for that. And Father, sometimes it's easy to, To do discipleship as long as it's convenient and comfortable and easy. But God, help us be a people who, like Paul, are strenuously contending and pushing into, even being willing to face hardship on behalf of our faith. God, may we have this diligence to devote ourselves, like Paul said, to prayer. May we be a people who are rooting and building our lives up in you, Jesus, being renewed in knowledge of you so that we more and more reflect who you are, Jesus. Father, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.